Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around these streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of those stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drews and this is Macabre London. As you'll possibly be able to hear from my voice, I've been suffering from a cold over the last week. Something which in the modern day is no big deal. Plenty of rest, paracetamol and a few doses of cough medicine are enough to help ease the symptoms and get me on the road to recovery. Our historical ancestors, however, weren't quite so lucky with the experimental treatments they had to endure. Bloodletting, leeches and enforced vomiting were all thought to be definite cures for the common cold, along with other preventative measures like staying away from water, greasing your throat with chicken fat and strapping dirty socks to your neck. I'm just glad that these suggested cures have fallen by the wayside in favour of much nicer remedies like a hot bath or drinking honey and lemon. Before the introduction of the National Health Service in 1948, which granted access to free healthcare across the UK for all, many people had no other choice than to resort to using cheaper alternatives to private medical care or visiting people who had medical interests but weren't licensed or in any way professional, often leading to the patient ending up with more complications than they went in with. From the Middle Ages onwards in London, the population was growing and with more people came more illness, disease and ailments, 
which produced hospitals and medical colleges where people could begin to practice on the ill and infirm. It was an exciting time for those who had an interest in the medical profession, but also a terrifying time if you were a patient. Today we'll be discovering the battle of one doctor in convincing sceptics of his theories and how a well in Soho led to the lives of millions being improved. The River Thames is the lifeblood of the city, the coursing artery that runs through the city centre and separates its two halves. The Thames provided for the first London settlers. It bought food in the form of water, fowl and fish, allowed them to travel along the length to more fertile hunting grounds when they fancied something other than fish, and it provided them with water. As the population of London grew over the years, the Thames became increasingly overused by London's residents, meaning that its supplies became increasingly contaminated as time went on. A habit of disposing everything from animal carcasses and building materials to human waste soon made its once clean waters run black with muck. One experiment carried out on the water of the Thames was to drop a sheet of white card into its waters. The cards that were dropped in were said to be invisible at a depth of one inch below the surface. The problem peaked in the mid-1800s when the Thames were being used as an open sewer. In the 1800s, if you were lucky enough to own a house, your effluent was simply sent underground into a cesspit which would be underneath your floorboards in your basement and would be left to compost into the soil. As houses were tightly packed together, and with their design often having several cesspits flowing into each other, the residents decided that rather living with the stench, it was preferable to have them cleaned and dumped into the nearest open water source, which usually happened to be the Thames. London had made a small start on creating a sewage system, but the sheer amount of people coming to London didn't allow it to be built quickly enough, and in turn it didn't reach the whole way across London. With cesspits overflowing, the decision was made to tip even more effluent into the Thames, making a bad situation temporarily better. As the Thames became more contaminated, so did the people relying on its water. Most areas of London had communal water pumps, which would be dug deep enough to draw water straight from the ground below, which would be drunk straight from the source. Apart from drinking, the residents would use the water pumps to carry out all of their water-related chores, everything from cleaning crockery to washing themselves, which meant the pump itself could at times be less than sanitary. At one such well in Soho, a discovery was about to be made that would change the state of Londoners and the rest of the UK's health forever. In 1854, a doctor by the name of John Snow, no, not that one, or that one, was frustrated at the common belief that disease was caused by miasma, a theory that bad smells in the air made people ill. It made sense to the people of the 19th century. Where there were bad smells, there were ill people. Breathing was thought to be terrible for you, the air thick with stench and disease. Germ theory was not yet discovered, and more efforts were put into clearing the smells rather than cleaning. It was only a matter of time before the miasma theory would begin to prove its theorists wrong. Snow had been fascinated with medicine since beginning his studies at the Hunterian College, and his fascination with cholera began when he was training. His first foray into practice life was treating patients during the first cholera outbreak in 1831, 
where he shadowed a senior doctor in the north of England. The disease bred a fascination in Snow's mind, and he saw firsthand just how devastating it could be to those who caught it, and the knock-on effect it had to society as a whole. He started working on a theory as a result of a few similarities he had seen between all sufferers. He knew that the disease must be curable, or at least preventable, if he could only work out how. At the end of summer in 1854, the residents of Broad Street in Soho started to show signs of an illness that had already affected other parts of the city. The disease was brutal, causing extreme diarrhoea, vomiting and subsequent dehydration, and if you caught it, doctors would usually refuse to treat you. This was due to the nature of the disease, with people often being past the point of return by the time they showed symptoms. If you were lucky enough to be seen by a doctor, they would usually prescribe the treatment of more water and purging, the act of forced vomiting induced by consuming salted water in vast quantities. This would help with dehydration for a short while until the inevitable happened and vomiting started again. Other cures included drinking drops of peppermint and clove oil in wine, smearing mustard on the soles of your feet and placing bags of hot salt on the most affected areas of the torso. In severe cases, it was advised to administer up to 40 drops of laudanum diluted in water. If the laudanum didn't kill you, then the cholera probably would. As Broad Street became infected, inevitably people began to succumb to the disease and pass away with the death toll climbing over to 600 by the end of the summer. Cholera was a disease that was fairly new to the residents of London. It had been sweeping its way across Poland, Germany, Russia and France, with cases also occurring in America for a while before making its way to the English shores. The first outbreak in the UK was in Sunderland in 1831, thought to be as the result of infected sailors returning to the mainland, and London followed suit later in the year, with its first cases starting to appear. The disease spread quickly and had already claimed nearly 7,000 people by 1832. By 1849, the death toll had reached upwards of 25,000. The disease had a habit of infecting large areas of the city, usually arriving in outbreaks that lasted for months, then disappearing. John Snow saw the effect the cholera outbreaks had across London, and had already started to form a theory that the disease was not spread by the bad smells, but in fact by contaminated water. He'd written and published his theory in 1849, five years before the outbreak in Soho happened and before the third wave outbreak, which was responsible for more than 10,000 deaths, between 1853 and 1854. Snow's theory was given a small amount of accreditation, but for many the miasma theory was still dominant, causing water to be further infected as people continued to not believe in contamination. This wasn't helped by the fact that noted medical professionals at the time, such as Florence Nightingale, were still believers in the miasma theory. Snow didn't become discouraged when his theory was discounted by others, but instead decided to proceed with something he referred to as the Grand Experiment, which would help to prove his theory once and for all. When the outbreak in Soho occurred, it gave John the opportunity to investigate the disease within a relatively small geographical area, and to test out a few possibilities that he'd grown to link with the other outbreaks he'd witnessed. The unique thing about this area of Soho was that it wasn't close to an open water source. The well and water pump were its only source of supposedly clean water, meaning that all of its residents were drinking from the same place. In other areas of the city close to the Thames, people benefited from having water available at home. 
The water was turned on to service the nearby houses for just an hour a day and then switched off at source from the Thames to arrive through the primitive plumbing system. This caused people to collect their water in bulk, often running the tap for the whole hour and using buckets to store water until the next day. This meant that odorous water would be kept inside buckets or in troughs in the street where it was subject to flies and any other number of passing animals deciding to take a sip. If residents were close by, they would go directly to the open river to collect buckets of water, again leaving them to stand in the open, subject to further contamination, particularly if it rained. This was what made Soho the perfect place for Snow to carry out his experiment. The variables were controlled, and he was relatively certain that the residents had all been drinking the same water. He'd seen a similar set of conditions at another outbreak at Albion Terrace in 1849, so Broad Street allowed Snow to home in on exactly what caused the disease. At the outbreak at Albion Terrace, Snow was able to see that the symptoms of the sufferers began with diarrhoea, leading him to be convinced that the disease wasn't caused by the air and bad smells. If that had been the case, then Snow was certain that the symptoms would have started in the chest and throat, much like the common cold. As the symptoms began in the gut, Snow knew that the disease had somehow made its way into the body via something which was consumed. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. In 1848, the Public Health Act was passed, which helped to protect the residents of London and the rest of the UK. The Act was set up with the illusion of protecting people and making conditions better for all, but actually provided a canny way for the government to save money. The Public Health Act was interlinked with something called the Poor Law, which was a long-standing relief service started in the 1600s to help those who were beggars, homeless or vagrants. But in 1834 the law was changed, and that made the option available so undesirable that many would rather stay on the street and seek help. The Act saw workhouses being built and the poor put to work in cramped and squalid conditions, with lodgings and food being paid for by its residents by contributing their wages, which they would never see a penny of. 
The workhouses were built to reduce the cost of the middle and upper classes paying to look after the poor. The upper classes had started to unfairly believe that the poor were avoiding work in order to live for free from their money, and so the new poor law was brought in to take vagrants off the street and to motivate the poor to help themselves by working hard. A cyclical nightmare of a situation which provided no relief for those who were placed there, and very little opportunity for them to remove themselves from the workhouses. It wasn't just adults who entered the workhouses, children were also taken in, where they were made to work in return for education and meagre rations. With many children being orphaned due to a high mortality rate, children were often placed in workhouses when there was no other option left for them. Workhouses were such a terrible option for people that they were heavily frowned upon by Victorians of the lower classes, and feared so much that outside of London, riots broke out to protest their existence. The workhouses were rife with disease. Their occupants often had shaved heads to avoid the spread of lice and open wounds, caused by working long laborious hours, often leading to prisoners getting infections. Edwin Chadwick was one of the people behind enforcing the new poor law in order to save the upper classes money, but instead actually improve conditions for those he had incarcerated in the workhouses. In 1842, he self-published a report titled The Sanitary Condition of the Labouring Population of Great Britain, which economically proved that improving the health of the poor would reduce the amount of people entering the workhouses due to the association with ill health. If Chadwick could keep more families alive and together, widows, orphans and single men would not need to be cared for. As Chadwick was of the same belief as many Victorians at this time, he proposed a simple set of steps that would help to improve the lives of the poor by removing the miasma and providing a town parish health board. Chadwick's suggested steps were improved drainage and provision of sewers, the removal of all refuse from houses, streets and roads, the provision of clean drinking water, the appointment of a medical officer for each town. After a particularly bad cholera outbreak in 1848 and after independent health board petitioning, the government relented and accepted Chadwick's proposal. This may have helped the outbreak in Soho in 1854 to be less severe, with only 600 deaths as opposed to the other areas of London which saw tolls infected in the thousands before the Public Health Act was passed. So even though Chadwick made the lives of the poor miserable, he did eventually help to improve them and extend them as a result of being money-hungry. Up until 1848, there had been no central board of health, and each borough of London was responsible for its own health-related responsibilities. This led to wealthier boroughs having better provisions than poorer ones. The boards were usually split into parish divisions and looked after by the church, who were not medical professionals by any means. This made John Snow's investigation into the Broad Street outbreak difficult, as he had to convince the parish in Soho of his theory along with the central board later down the line. Reverend Henry Whitehead, who was the curate of the parish of St James in Soho, was intrigued by Snow's theories, but didn't think much of the contamination idea, so alongside Snow they carried out further investigations of speaking to the residents who had been affected by the outbreak. The area of St James was heavily populated, with the small terraced houses often having upwards of 15 occupants inside one building. Broad Street was a bustling area, and wasn't just residential. There were bakers, brewers and butchers in the area, who all had less than savoury ways of disposing of their waste. The butchers would often leave animal offcuts outside in their yards to rot with intestines and congealed blood being washed into the streets and draining into the cesspits of the houses below, 
making the area highly pungent, which was only helped to exacerbate the miasma theory. Whitehead discovered that at the site of the Soho outbreak, a five-month-old baby girl by the name of Frances Lewis had become infected with cholera on the 29th of August and passed away on the 2nd of September. Frances's mother had been washing her baby's nappies into the cesspool located at the front of her house in 40 Broad Street, along with all the other wastewater from the home being washed out into the street and into the pit below. 40 Broad Street was the house closest to the neighbourhood's well and water pump, with only three feet between the front door and the pump. Whitehead ordered the well to be investigated immediately, and what he found was astonishing. The walls of the cesspit of Francis's home were cracked, decayed and leaking. This meant that the waste being produced from the home of over 18 residents was being pushed into the water supply of the well and drunk by all in the neighbouring area. This had caused Francis's case of cholera to infect everyone that drank from the well. This proved John Snow's theory that drinking water that had been contaminated with the effluent of those infected with cholera was what spread the disease. Once the discovery of the leaking cesspits had been made in Soho, plans were set in motion to stop the spread of cholera as quickly as possible. To the benefit of the nearby residents, the parish health board were convinced by Snow and Whitehead to disable the water pump to avoid any further spread of the infection. The handle of the water pump was removed and the well became redundant for a short amount of time until the handle was replaced by the parish deeming the water safe to drink again, despite the cesspits not having been repaired, much to the dismay of Snow and Whitehead. Luckily, the time that the pump was not in use gave the cholera outbreak time to subside and the residents of the area to return to full health. Over the next few years, thanks to the growing belief that effluent was best got rid of as quickly as possible and left hanging around in cesspits, so began the age of the flushing toilet. Granted, the first flushing toilets did empty directly into the Thames, which didn't really improve the situation that greatly, but it did help to remove the toxic waste that was in the residential areas meaning that cholera outbreaks were less and less frequent. The invention of the flushing toilet did bring about a new fresh hell, in terms that the effluent levels in the Thames rose to such levels that it caused the Great Stink of 1858, which came about at the height of summer. The Great Stink drove the politicians working in the House of Commons, situated on the banks of the Thames, to consider abandoning their usual premises in favour of going out of the city to the more fragrant Oxford and St Albans. However, they persisted in staying in Westminster by using heavy curtains soaked in chloride to mask the stench. As the stench only got worse, Parliament ruled to plough large amounts of money into creating a new sewer system that would clean things up once and for all. It seemed that the rich had to suffer in order for the issue to be taken seriously. This fast and ambitious sewage system made by Joseph Bazalgette is still largely the sewage system London uses today albeit with a few repairs happening along the way. Snow continued in his persistence of the waterborne contamination theory and only drank boiled water for the remainder of his life. Snow suffered a stroke whilst at work in his office in June 1858 and died six days later. He was just 45 years old. It wasn't until 1866 that one of Snow's major doubters, William Farr, trial prescribing only boiled water to an area of the city that was suffering from the early stages of a cholera outbreak, which stopped the disease in its tracks. Farr was still sceptical about Snow's theory, but couldn't deny that unclean water was definitely related to cholera somehow. 
Eventually, Snow's theory was acknowledged, but only once many other physicians in the later 1800s and early 1900s had proved many other diseases, such as typhoid, to be waterborne. Snow never got to see his theory grow to be widely accepted, but every year a group of people get together to remember his advances in medical science. The John Snow Society gathered together every September to mark the discovery at the well in Soho, and the plight that medical advancements still have even in the 21st century. The occasion is marked by ceremoniously removing and replacing a pump handle, to symbolise the issues modern-day medical science still faces. Anyone can join the John Snow Society, but there is one requirement. All members, when in London, must make a compulsory trip to the pub that bears his name placed upon the site of the well in Soho. Which is all well and good, unless you live in London. Coming up next week on Macabre London. Being burned at the stake, pelted with stones, or being thrown in the Thames were just a few punishments and methods of execution carried out upon some of the unfortunate residents of London who were believed to be involved in black magic. Witchcraft was at a fever pitch during the 15 and 1600s, and anyone who didn't conform would soon find themselves at the centre of a witch trial. But perhaps even more bizarrely was the conviction of a woman for practising witchcraft that happened during World War II. Grab your familiar, a couple witches brew, and join us next time where we'll be casting a spell and conjuring up a magical story or two. If you've enjoyed this episode of Macabre London, then please share, rate and subscribe. It really helps us to get more people discovering the podcast. If you like this show, then the chances are your friends will too, so do tell them about it. If you want to keep up to date with us on social media, then you can join us on Facebook by searching for Macabre London. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre London and on Instagram at Macabre LDN. We'd love to hear from you if you have any macabre stories of your own about our fair capital. And you can contact us by emailing London at hotmail.com if you have any ideas of what you'd like to hear us investigate next. We'll see you next time. Macabre London is hosted on Acast and written, performed and produced by me, Nikki Druce, with additional script editing by Neil Murray. Macabre London is available to download through Acast or iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Music credits for each show are in the episode description along with the artist links. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.